Chapter 8 of Monica. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Monica by Evelyn Everett Green. Wooed and Married and A. So Monica had engaged herself to her kinsman, Randolph Trevlin, and the neighborhood, though decidedly astonished at this sudden surrender of liberty on the part of the fair, unapproachable girl, could not but see how desirable was the match from every point of view, and rejoice in the thought that Trevlin would never lose its well-loved lady. As for Monica herself, the days passed by as in a dream, a strong dream of misty sunshine and sweet, faint fragrance through which she wandered with uncertain steps, led onward by a sense of brighter light beyond. She was not unhappy. Indeed, a strange new sense of calm and rest had fallen upon her since she had laid her hand in Randolph's and promised to love him if she could. A few short weeks ago, how she would have chafed against the fetters she wore. Now she hardly felt them as fetters. They neither galled nor hurt her. Indeed, after the feeling of uncertainty, of impending change that had hung over her of late, this peaceful calm was doubly grateful. It seemed at last as if she had reached the shelter of a safe haven, and pausing there, with a sense of grateful well-being, she felt as if no storm or tempest could ever reach her again. Monica's nature was not introspective. She did not easily analyze her feelings. Had she done so now, she might have laid bare a secret deep down within her that would have surprised her not a little. But she never attempted to look into her heart. She rather avoided definite thought. She lived in a sort of vaguely sweet dream, glad and thankful for the undercurrent of happiness which had so unexpectedly crept into her life. She did not seek to know its source. It was enough that it was there. Randolph was very good to her. She did not attempt to deny that. Nothing could have been more tender and chivalrous than his manner towards her. He arrogated none of the rights which an affianced husband might fairly have claimed. He was content with what she gave him. He never tried to force her confidence or to win words or promises that did not come spontaneously to her lips. She was shy with him for some time after the engagement had been ratified, more silent and reserved than she had been before. Yet there was a charm in her very silence that went home to his heart, and he felt that she was nearer to him day by day. I will win her yet, heart and soul, he would say sometimes, with a thrill of proud joy as he looked into the sweet eyes raised to his, and read a something in their depths that made his heart throb gladly. Give me time, only time, and she shall be altogether mine. She never shunned him. She let him be her companion when and where he would, and she began to look for him and to feel more satisfied when he was at her side. He was too wise to overdo her with his society or seem to infringe the liberty in which she had grown up, but he frequently accompanied her on her walks or rides, and he had the satisfaction of feeling that his presence was not distasteful to her. Indeed, as days went by and she grew used to the idea that had been at first so strange, he fancied that there was something of welcome in the smile that greeted his approach. She never spoke of the future when they should be man and wife, and only by a hint here and there did he broach the subject or tell of his private affairs. Both were content for the time being to live in the present, that present that seemed so calm and bright and full of promise. As days and weeks fled by, a color dawned upon Monica's cheeks and a light in her eyes. She grew more beautiful every day or so, thought those who loved her, and watched her with loving scrutiny, 
and Mrs. Pendrel, who was, so to speak, the girl's good angel in this crisis of her life, would caress the golden head sometimes and ask with gentle motherly solicitude, "'My Monica is happy, is she not?' "'I think so, Aunt Elizabeth,' Monica answered once, speaking out more freely than she had done before. "'Other people are happy. The dread and uncertainty about the future seems all gone. Trevlin is not sad any longer. It is my own home again, my very own.' I cannot quite express it, but something seems to have come into my life and changed everything. I am happy often now, nearly always, I think. Mrs. Pendrel smiled a little. Does your happiness result from the knowledge that you, you and Arthur, I suppose I must include him, need never leave Trevelyn, and that you have pleased your father? Tell me, Monica, is that all? A faint color mantled the girl's face. I know it sounds selfish, but I hardly think anyone knows what Trevlin is to us, and what Arthur's welfare is to me. Then reading the meaning of the earnest glance bent upon her, she added quickly, Ah, oh, yes, Aunt Elizabeth, I know there is that, too. He is very, very good to me, and I will do everything to make him happy, and to be a good wife when the time comes. Indeed, I do think of him. I know what he is and what he deserves, only— Only I cannot talk about that even to you— I do not want you to talk, my love. I only want you to feel. And very low the answer was spoken. I think I do feel. Certainly things were going well, very well. It seemed as if the course of Randolph's true love might run smoothly enough to the very end now. Tom Pendrel chaffed him somewhat mercilessly on the easy victory he had obtained over the somewhat difficult subject, and he felt an exultant sense of joyful triumph when he compared his position of today with the one he had occupied a week or two back. Monica's gentleness and growing dependence upon him were inexpressibly sweet. The dawn of a quiet happiness in her face filled his heart with delight. The victory was not quite won yet, but he began to feel a confidence that it was not far distant. And this hope would in all probability have been realized in due course had it not been for untoward circumstances and from the presence of enemies in the camp, one his sworn foe, the other his champion and ally, but despite this, a born mischief-maker and marplot. So long as Randolph was on the spot, all went well. His strong will dominated all others, and his influence upon Monica produced its own effect. Love like his could not but win its way to the heart of the woman he loved. But Randolph could not remain always at Trevlin. Hard as it was to tear himself away, the conventionalities of life demanded his absence from time to time, and other duties called him elsewhere. And it was when his back was fairly turned that the mischief-makers began their task of undoing, as far as was possible, all the good that had been done. Randolph had been exceedingly careful to say nothing to Monica about hastening their marriage. He saw that she took for granted a long engagement, that she had hardly contemplated as yet the inevitable end whither that engagement tended. And until he had assured himself that her heart was wholly his, nothing would have induced him to ask her to give herself irrevocably to him. When the right moment came, she would surrender herself willingly, for Monica was not one who would do anything by halves. Till that day came, however, he was resolved to wait and breathed no word of the future that awaited them. Lady Diana was of a different way of thinking. She had been amazed at Monica's pliability in the matter of her engagement, so surprised and so well-pleased that, for some considerable time, she had acted with unusual discretion and had avoided saying anything to irritate or alarm the sensitive feelings of her niece. 
Possibly she stood in a little unconscious awe of Randolph, for certainly so long as he remained, she was quiet and discreet enough. But when his presence was once removed, then began a system of petty persecution and annoyance that was the very thing to rouse in Monica a spirit of opposition and hostility. Lady Diana had set her heart upon a speedy marriage, half afraid that her niece might change her mind. She took a half-spiteful pleasure in the knowledge that the girl's independence was at last to be curbed, and that she was about to take upon herself the common lot of womanhood. She lost no opportunities of reading homilies on wifely submission and subjection. She bestirred herself over the matter of the trousseau as if the day were actually fixed, and Monica's indignant protests were laughed at and ignored as if too childish for serious argument. The girl began to observe, too, that her father spoke of her marriage as of something speedily approaching, and that he, Lady Diana, and even Arthur, seemed to understand that she would spend much of her time away from Trevelyn when once that ceremony had taken place. Her father and brother spoke cheerfully of her leaving them, taking it for granted that her affianced husband was first in her thoughts, and that they must make her way easy to go away with him, without one regret for those left behind. Lady Diana, with more of feminine insight, had less of kindliness in her method of approaching the subject, but when she found them all agreed upon the point, the girl felt almost as if she had been betrayed. There was no Randolph to shield and protect her. She could not put into written words the tumult of her conflicting feelings. She could only struggle and suffer and feel like a wild thing trapped in the hunter's toils. Ah, if only Randolph had not left her. But when the poison had done its work, she ceased even to wish for him back. Another enemy to her peace of mind was Conrad Fitzgerald. Monica was growing to feel a great repugnance to this fair-haired, smooth-tongued man, despite the nominal friendship that existed between him and those of her name. She knew that her feelings were changing towards him, but like other young things, she was ashamed of any such change, regarding it as treacherous and ungenerous, especially after the pledge she had given him. Conrad thus found opportunities of seeing her from time to time, and set to work with malicious pleasure to poison her mind against her affianced husband. She would not listen to a single direct word against him. That he discovered almost at once, somewhat to his astonishment and chagrin. But there are more ways of killing a cat than by hanging it, as he said to himself, and a well-directed shaft, steeped in poison and launched with a practiced hand, struck home and did its work only too well. He insinuated that after her marriage, Trevlin would never be her home during her father's lifetime, at least possibly never any more. Randolph had property of his own. Was it likely he would bury himself and his beautiful young wife in a desolate place like that? Of course, her care of Arthur would be a thing entirely put on one side. It was out of the question that she should ever be allowed to devote herself to him as of old, when once she had placed her neck beneath the matrimonial yoke. Most likely, some excuse would be forthcoming to rid Trevelyn of the undesirable presence of the invalid. Randolph was not a man to be deterred by any nice scruples from going his own way. Words spoken before marriage were never regarded seriously when once the inevitable step had been taken. Monica heard and partly believed, believed enough to make her restless and miserable. Never a word crossed her lips that could show her trust in Randolph shaken. She was loyal to him outwardly, but she suffered keenly nevertheless. He was not there to give her confidence, as he could well have done, by his unwavering love and devotion, and in his absence, the influence he had won slowly waned, and the old fear and distrust crept back. 
It might have vanished had he returned to charm it away, but alas, he only came to make Monica his wife in sudden, unexpected fashion, before her heart was really won. Lord Trevelyan had been taken dangerously ill. It was an attack similar to those he had suffered from once or twice before, but in a more severe form. His life was in imminent danger. Nothing could save him, the doctors agreed, but the most perfect rest of body and mind. And it seemed as if only the satisfaction of calling Randolph's son, of seeing him Monica's husband, could secure to him that repose of spirit so absolutely essential to his recovery. Monica did not waver when her father looked pleadingly into her face and asked if she were ready. Her assent was calmly and firmly spoken, and after that she left all in other hands and did not quit her father's presence night or day. He was better for the knowledge that the wish of his heart was about to be consummated, and she was so utterly absorbed in him as to be all but unconscious of the flight of time. She knew that days sped by as on wings. She even heard them speak of tomorrow without any stirring of heart. She was absorbed in care for her almost dying father. She had no thought to spare for aught else. On the evening of that day, Randolph stood before her, holding her hands in his warm clasp. Is this your wish, my Monica? She thrilled a little beneath his ardent gaze. A momentary sense of comfort and protection came over her in his presence. But physical languor blunted her feelings. She was too weary even to feel acutely. It is my wish, she answered gently. He bent his head and kissed her tenderly and lingeringly, looking earnestly into the pale, sweet face that seemed not quite so responsive as it had done when he saw it last. But he could not read the look at war. He kissed her and went away, breathing half sadly, half triumphantly, the word, tomorrow. Lady Diana, ever indefatigable and contriving, had managed as if by magic to have all things in readiness, rich white satin and brocade, orange blossom and lace veil, all was in readiness, as if she had weeks for her preparations. Monica started and half recoiled as she saw the bridal dress laid out for her adornment, but she was quiet and passive in the hands of her attendants as they arrayed her in her snowy robes, and well she repaid their efforts. Only Lady Diana felt any dissatisfaction. "'Why, child,' she said impatiently, "'you look like a snow maiden.' You might be a nun about to take the veil instead of a bride going to our wedding. I have no patience with such pale looks. Randolph will think we have brought him a corpse for his bride. Randolph was waiting in the little church on the cliff. His heart beat thick and fast. He himself began to feel as if he were living in a dream. He could not realize that the time had come when he was to call Monica his own. Lady Diana and Mrs. Pendrel were there, and a friend of his own, young Lord Haddon, who had accompanied him from town the previous day to play the part of best man at the ceremony. There was a little rustle and a little stir outside, and then Monica entered, leaning on Tom Pendrel's arm, and without once lifting her eyes, walked steadily up the church till she stood beside Randolph. Never, perhaps, had she looked more lovely, yet never, perhaps, more remote and unapproachable than when she stood before the altar in her bridal robes, to pledge herself for better, for worse, to the man who loved her, till death should them part. He looked at her with a strange pang and aching at heart, but the moment was not one when hesitation or drawing back was possible. In a few more minutes, Monica and Randolph Trevelyn were made man and wife. End of chapter 8 Read by Glenda Villamar